life lessons. And we've been going back into the book of Psalm and discovering life lessons. And something I find personally very encouraging as I study it out, there's so much theology and so much truth in a simple phrase written by the psalmist. How do I remain sane in an insane world? And just to give you a quick summary, our world, we look around where right is seen as wrong and wrong is seen as right. People don't know where we were from. We don't know where we're going as a, as a society. And as a result of that, we can correctly call our world absolutely insane. We live in a crazy world. And so how can I remain sane? How can I have the correct perspective of who I am, where I've come from, and the hope and the joy and the peace of where we're going in the future? Through this series, we've had some past principles, and they've been very simple principles of God is good, God is great. Last week, we talked about the fact that God forgives us and he replaces our sin with his blessing. And then this week, our principle is knowing God personally will change my life. That is not a surprise to anyone who knows Jesus Christ is the Savior. But this is what we need to go back to and remember what sometimes is very simple. We can go through the motions of church. We know when to sit down, when to stand up. Basically, when I look out in the crowd, some of you are sitting closer than you've ever sat in your entire lives, but most of you are sitting pretty much where you always sit. We can do church. We can go through the motions of life, but then we stop and think, I know the creator of the universe. Personally. You don't just go, yeah, it's no big deal. It changes our life in every aspect of our life. In the, the way we look at our past, the way we look at our present, and the way we anticipate the future is totally changed because you know God personally. We're going to be looking at Psalm chapter number 90 this morning. But before you get there, if you want to follow along in your Bible, you can look through We're going to look at some scripture from the book of Numbers, chapter number 13 and chapter number 14. But before we get there, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background. Because Psalm 90, unlike other Psalms that we've looked at in the past, where they've been written by a man named David, this Psalm is written by a man named Moses. And several psalms in the Bible are written by Moses. We don't know exactly when he wrote this psalm, but many of the Bible commentators suggest it was during a time period that we see in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, when the nation of Israel was going through an absolute time of turmoil. And if you're not very familiar with the Old Testament books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, I'm going to give you a really, really quick summary. I'm going to give you 400 years of history in five seconds. And so we're going to go back and look at the perspective of how things worked along in that timeline. You see, God was working through the nation of Israel and God literally chose their forefather, a man named Abraham, and made some incredible promises to him. He says, through you, you are going to be a great nation. At the time, he had himself and his elderly wife, and he was an elderly man, and they had no children, and they were looking at each other going, well, how's that going to work out? 
And God miraculously worked and gave them a child. And then from that, of course, from that, from that, from that, from that, from that, and ended up over the course of time, I'm giving you a really concise history. And I hope this makes you a little bit hungry to get into God's word and read this for yourself because it's a tremendous the way it flows. And you can see God's hand working. And God took Abraham and he grew that family. And then from that, he had sons and they had grandsons. And then from that, great grandsons that became the 12. 12 tribes of Israel and they moved from the land of Canaan, their, their promised land, into Egypt. And they were there for hundreds of years. And Bible commentators are a little unsure about exactly how long they were in some scriptures talk about being 400 years. Others suggest it was a couple of hundred years. Regardless, what we have is originally two people that God had called and says, I'm going to make you a great nation and through you the entire world is going to be blessed. And then a couple of hundred years later, we have many Bible commentators suggest well over two million Israelites at this time. They were in Egypt, but the problem was they were slaves. And they were generational slaves. And quite honestly, the way they look at each other, I'm a slave. I've always been a slave. My father was a slave and he always was a slave. My grandfather was a slave and he always was a slave. And they had a generational slave mindset. And God began working as you begin reading in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter number one begins with the fact that they were under oppression, under slavery. They were crying out to God and God was protecting them, and he raised up a man from childhood named Moses. And God miraculously worked in Moses' life. And Moses, with the nation of Israel being hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, Moses is set aside where he should have been killed as an infant. His life was spared, and God, in his sense of humor, lets him grow up in Pharaoh's own household. He lived in Pharaoh's household for 40 years. And then because of his, his own rejection from his, his own family as in Pharaoh's household, and also because he committed a murder of an Egyptian god, and also the rejection of his own people, he went running away to the wilderness, and he spent another 40 years in the wilderness. Now, Moses is 80 years old. So if you are 79, you still have a long life ahead of you, according to Moses. And God called Moses out from the wilderness and he called him to return back to the nation of Egypt and to liberate his people. And he literally was going to go before Pharaoh and say, God says, let my people go. Now we are jumping way ahead. There's a lot of things inside of here. And got through that, God brought the, the plagues to Egypt and eventually the, the children of Israel were led out of Egypt. And God took these people who were generational slaves and now made them his own people as they were leaving Egypt. God, of course, they walk through the Red Sea. He begins to provide for them. They're celebrating. They see the defeat of the Egyptian army right before them. And now they are beginning to walk in the wilderness. And as they're walking through the wilderness, that's why we have the books, the books of Exodus. And we have the books of the law are given during this time period. And Moses goes up to the top of a, a mountain called Mount Sinai, and he begins to receive the law of God. Now, something is remarkable here. Talking about perspective, the way we see things. 
the children of Israel had seen some absolutely incredible miracles. They had seen the plagues against Egypt. They had seen how God was working and guiding them. They had walked through the Red Sea and seen it collapse on the Egyptian army. They had celebrated and they had sung songs of of praise to God. They had followed God. During the daytime, there was a pillar of cloud that they would see. At nighttime, there was a pillar of fire that they would see so they would literally see the presence of God all around them during that time period Moses had a close and intimate and friendship relationship with God and the Bible describes it that he talked to God as with a friend he said I know God personally and it's changed my life he goes up to Mount Sinai, and if you know the, the account, he took the, the tablets, and of course that's where we get the Ten Commandments, and there's a, a number of different things that take place during that, that time period. And he's up there for 40 days. Now during that time period, none of the children of Israel are allowed to go anywhere near Mount Sinai. In fact, the Bible says if they touch or they walk up Mount Sinai, God is going to kill them. He says, stay away. Now, I'm just processing here. After 40 days of seeing the top of Mount Sinai being in the presence of God. Now, this is a little of my imagination, but I can imagine there being thunder and lightning and there being a glow of the very presence of God on the top of that mountain during that time period. It wasn't like, oh, where's Moses? We know exactly where Moses is. Do you know what they were doing? The children of Israel kind of got bored. And they changed their perspective, even though they're in the very presence of God. They knew about God, but they actually, I don't believe, really made a commitment to God. They took their gold and they gathered together and then they formed a false god in the form of a calf, a golden calf. Now, their excuse was, they said, we just took the gold and threw it in the fire, and out from the fire came a calf. And we went, wow, so we began to worship this calf. And what's remarkable about this is, if you can think of it this way, they're worshiping this calf, and they're saying, here is our God. And they begin to go back to the mentality of being, I'm going to be a slave to myself, a slave to my environment. I'm going to be a slave to this false God. And behind them is Mount Sinai with the law of God being given to them in a loving way by a loving and caring God that has saved them and changed their lives. And they turn their back on that, and they're worshiping a false God. God brings some judgment upon the, the children of Israel during that time. And they continue on, and, and there's a number of things that take place, and I'm jumping way ahead. And it leads us into the time when the nation of Israel has left the, the wilderness of Sinai and they've gone north, and they're just on the southern edge of where they're going to have their promised land. It's in another wilderness. And God comes to Moses and says, Moses, get the 12 tribes to get one leader from each tribe. And it says in the book of Numbers, chapter number 13, verses 1 and 2, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan. And here's a beautiful phrase, Which I am giving to the people of Israel. He was saying here, it's yours. 
I'm giving this to you. I have taken you out of Egypt. You've seen all these various things take place, these miraculous things, how I provided for you, I've protected you, and now I'm giving you this land. Take 12 men, and these were leaders of people that would represent their individual tribes, and go and spy out this land. And they, these 12 men, the most famous two being a man named Joshua and Caleb, and then we often know them as the other 10. And they went spying out the land from the south to the north. They spent 40 days going through the land. And they all came to the agreement, all 12 of them, that this was a land flowing with milk and honey. Just south of where modern-day Jerusalem is, there's an area called the Valley of Eskel. And in that, uh, that valley, they gathered grapes. And it says that they had to carry the, the, the clump of grapes with two people and a stake because the grape cluster was so large. This was a tremendous land, and every single one of them came back agreeing, this is a wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. And as they came back to give their report, they all agreed this is a wonderful and tremendous land, the promised land of God. But there are giants in that land. And he goes on to describe the fact that these are, these are giants, and not necessarily physical giants, as much as there are giant nations in this land that are far bigger and stronger than we are. You see, these people had, weren't trained warriors. The children of Israel were not people that had lived lifetimes and, uh, of training, preparing for, for battle. These were slaves and generational slaves and as a result of the bad report from 10 of the spies, the entire nation turned their back on God and said, God, you cannot do this. You cannot protect us. And the two spies that came with a positive report, Joshua and Caleb, and if you know your Bible, you'll know that Joshua, of course we have the book of Joshua, became the, the next leader after Moses of the nation of Israel. God blessed Caleb, and those two men were the only two to enter into the promised land from that generation. God asked them to move forward. They had seen the protection of God, and they turned back and said, no, thank you. Why? Because they had a negative past, they had generational slavery, they had hurt and pain and lost. Maybe they had past failures, maybe they had sickness in their past. And it becomes a natural and a common excuse for our disobedience to God. You say, God wants to work in your life and change your perspective, and He wants to move you forward for some big things. And we go, God... I can see how you worked in the past, but, but no thank you. Because there's all these excuses why we can't move forward. In the book of Numbers, chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, we see the change in the people's hearts. And they begin to complain. And they begin to blame God, saying, Oh, slavery was so much better than this. And it says in th verses 3 and 4, Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? God, it'd be better if we never even knew you. Now, God's not petty. But do you think that would hurt? Do you think God feels the rejection of his people? 
And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And because of the sin of rebellion, that passage in chapter 14 continues on and God gives judgment upon the people. And to summarize it, that entire generation of, of people will not enter into the promised land. They have rejected and rebelled against God. God says, you will not enter into the land. Your children will, but you will not. And they begin to mourn as a people. Moses writes Psalm 90 as a response from God's viewpoint of saying, what do we know about God? What do we know? I can, what do I, I can, I already know my opinion. I already know my perspective, but what's God's opinion? What's God's perspective on who we are as individuals, where we've been and where we're going? And in the question of how do I remain sane in an insane world? Well, I'm going to give you the answer. No God. If you know God personally, it's going to change your perspective and you will remain sane in this crazy world. You'll have the ability to see and to do what is true and what is right and when everyone else is doing what is wrong. In this passage of Psalm 90, I'm not going to read the entire psalm to you because of time today, but I would encourage you to read through this. And Psalm 90 gives us a change of perspective. And what we can ask ourselves is to know God personally. Well, what does God say about himself? What do we know in the Bible as a result? What can we learn about God as a result? It's kind of like if you were an art history major. And I can imagine being an art history major, sitting in an art gallery, thinking, what does the artist mean by this? And of course, you had to act really pretentious if you're an art history major. You know a little about who the artist was, and you may study the life and the history and the circumstances about and how this person developed this artwork. And the picture I chose on the screen is a picture of an artwork that I look at and go, I have no idea what that is. And so you sit there and think, what was the artist thinking? And our history majors will spend hours contemplating and thinking about the meaning of this painting. We have something far greater than just our opinion about what God is and who God is and what God wants for our lives. We have the ability to know God personally. And if the artist came and sat down on the bench next to you, as you contemplate the art in front of you. And the artist says, let me tell you exactly what I meant by every brushstroke. Let me explain to you what I meant by this image in front of you. You wouldn't leave that conversation as just a person that goes, yeah, I met someone. You would say, I'm an expert about that art piece because I sat down with the artist and I have firsthand information about who he is and what he's done and why he painted that. The same thing we sit with God. God in Psalm 90 is explaining who he is. In Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2, it says this, Lord, 
You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And as we look at these, these two verses, we see some tremendous theology in this, this, just these two verses about who God is. We can see here, and theology is the biblical study of God. We can see that God is our dwelling place. He's our home. He's our protector. And when we look at this, we, we see that it says for all generations before the mountains were brought forth and you had formed the earth. So we can see creation. The fact that God is the creator in these verses. And it goes on. It says for everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And the word everlasting to everlasting, just as a, as a little side, those words literally mean from as far as I can see that way, and as far as I can see that way, as far as my perspective is, you are God. Absolutely everywhere. So we can see the fact that God is eternal here. We continue going through Psalm 90. We learn about, well, we learn about anthropology, about the study of man, about who we are as people. We learn about, I'll expand your word power today, homartiology, which is the study of sin and the fact that we are sinners as people and our sin has separated us from God. We go in this passage, we learn about eschatology, which is the study of the end times and the last times. And we learn about our past and we learn about our present. We learn about our future through this psalm and this morning i'm purposely being very very simple and frustratingly so because there's so much theology in this psalm we're talking about perspective this morning and the fact that we can know god i have two very simple questions we ask the question how do i remain sane in an insane world i'm just going to refer to hosea chapter number 11 verse number 9 which says, I am God and not man. I'm going to give you a saying this morning. And you may have heard this before because I didn't make this up. God is God and I am not. And that's helpful in our perspective of who we are, of recognizing God, you are the one that's cr the creator, you're the sustainer, you're God, but I'm not God. So we have two lessons we're going to learn this morning. The two lessons are, you ready? Now you can get your bulletins out. First lesson is life is short, so make the most of time. Number two is life is difficult, so we need to use the difficulties to mature in our life. And we're going to look at this passage and look at two main verses, then we'll have some supporting scripture. But here's the perspective. I want you to remember these things. First of all, life is short, then make the most use of time. It says in Psalm 90, verse number 12, it says, So teach us. If life is short, we don't have any time to waste. And it says, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. If I was to ask you, and I asked a number of you, how was your week this week? How are you doing? And several people said, and I agree with this completely, it was a fast week. Now, some of you disagreed, and you had a really, really long week. For the rest of us, it was a really fast week. And you look back, and you know, it's August already. Who's still writing 2022? And as you look back upon this year, you go, where has the time gone? You look back upon life and you look back upon it and you look in the mirror and you straighten your face out. You look, where have the years gone? 
And you begin to think, I don't want to miss out on the lessons that God has for me. I don't want to miss out on the purposes that God has for me and my family and my community. And it starts with us as an individual. So you can personalize this. Rather than saying, teach us, you can say, God, teach me to number my days that I can get the heart of wisdom is the God's heart. That passage in another verse, it says in verses 3 and 4, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. And verse 10 says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. If you're over 80, congratulations. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. I don't think I need to convince you that life is short. I don't think I need to convince you. As life goes on, it gets harder, and the aches and pains get more, and the, and the, the, the past becomes greater and sometimes overwhelming. So we're going to use a man that died 90 years ago as an example. His name was C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd, to give you a little history, is a man, as the picture shows on the screen, is a cricketer, born and raised in England, and he was part of a very wealthy family. In fact, when his father died, he gave him a very large inheritance. So as a result, he was a wealthy man. He went to the prestigious schools of, of Eton College through his school years and then went to Cambridge University, and he actually began to play cricket both in England, then he finally played for England in a certain little test match in 1882 that became the very first Ashes. So, of course, Australia won. He had everything going for him. He came to know Christ as a Savior early on in his life and then recommitted his life as an older teenager, young adult, when his brother became very, very ill. And it changed his perspective on time. It changed his perspective on life and about where he was and where he, what he was going to invest his life with. And he said this. In 1884, he said, What is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? As a result of this experience, he went on later and said, I know that cricket would not last. And that honor would not last. And nothing in this world would last. But it was worthwhile living for the world to come. C.T. Studd gave away his inheritance to various Christian organizations across the world. He became a missionary, first of all, in China for a number of years. And then from that, moved to India for six years and spent almost 20 years in Africa as a missionary, finally dying in 1931 in Africa. And he was most famous for this poem that he wrote called Only One Life. There's eight different stanzas. I'm just going to read the first and the last to you. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And the last stanza goes on and says, Only one life 
yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I hope you'll think through that thought. Only one life will soon be passed. Life is so fast. Only what's done for Christ will last. We as people, we are made for eternity. We are made, and to reflect back upon that one more time, Teach us to number our days. Thank God for our intimate and personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If you're familiar with Job in the Bible, Job says in Job 14.1, Man who is born of a woman, in other words, everybody, is few of days and full of trouble. That's full of encouragement there. The first point is, life is short. Make the most of life. The second point for us this morning is life is difficult. So let's take those difficulties and learn from them and leverage them to move forward and mature in life. Psalm 90, verse number 14 says, satisfy us. The first part we looked at was teach us. Now we're asking God to satisfy us. In the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Here's the response that Moses was giving to the nation of Israel. We try to do things our own way. We try to be satisfied with ourselves and our goodness and our greatness, remembering the past. And he says, satisfy us with your love. The question of the day is, is God's love Is Jesus Christ's salvation for you, is that actually enough? I was thinking through this. I have a very unspiritual couple illustrations for you. As a child of the 80s through the 90s, there was an ad campaign that went through my entire, my entire childhood was with a Snickers bar, was Snickers really satisfies. And they had a number of different ads, and I looked up some of the old 80s and 90s ads on YouTube and reminisced. They would talk about Snickers. If you're having a bad day, if you're really, really tired, and one lady said, I keep a a Snickers in my third drawer. At the end of the day, I take it out, and it gives me a boost. Now, granted, if you you have a peanut allergy, watch out. But the thought is, Snickers, that will satisfy you. That will help you. Or have you ever seen the ads on TV for the hamburgers? They have these magnificently huge hamburgers with people with tiny hands holding them. And they look amazing and everything is perfect and not squashed. And then you go and order it and you get it out of the box and it looks nothing like it at all. And you think that doesn't look like anything like the real thing. Well, here we have the request of God. God, will you satisfy me with your love? In other words, will God, will you make your love enough for me? Sometimes, and really often, we say, God, I want and need your love, and I want everything to be easy. I want everything not to be scary. I never, ever want to be tired ever again. I want and need perfect children. I mean, close, but perfect children. I need, and I'll use a wife as an example, but you can use husband if you need to. I need a perfect wife that always agrees with me. 
I need your love, God, but I also need all these other things, and then I'll be satisfied. And what we find in life is the hamburger never looks like the picture. But when we look at God and his love and his care for us and the hope that we have for the future, it changes our perspective absolutely and completely. And Jesus, when he was talking to a lady known as the woman at the well in John chapter number four, Jesus is talking to this lady and he's encouraging her. And he's talking to this lady who had a very, very difficult past. And he uses the illustration of God's love and his salvation and uses the illustration of water. And it says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. And you imagine him looking at the well and pointing at the well and saying, if you drink that water, you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So the question is, life is difficult. Is God's love enough? The nation of Israel, as a result, in Numbers chapter number 14, go back and they try to do a backtrack. Let me just read the passage for you. Numbers 14, verses 39 through 45. It says, When Moses told these words, in other words, judgment is coming upon you, you're not going to enter the promised land. To all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we'll go to the place that the Lord has promised for we have sinned and they're saying okay we'll backtrack don't worry we'll do it now that's literally what they're saying okay God we'll we'll do what you want us to do verse 41 says but Moses says why now are you transgressing in the command of the Lord when that will not succeed do not go up For the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned your back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country. Although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. So the nation of Israel said, don't worry, God, I will do this. And they left God behind and said, "Okay, God. And they went off. Talk about ignorant faith. They went and fought the Amalekites that the previous day they were terrified of. They went and fought the Canaanites. And it says in verse 45, then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. They had a horrible defeat as a result. You see, here's the real key. We can learn from the nation of Israel here, from their mistakes, so we don't make them ourselves. Life is short and life is difficult. So therefore, let's not waste our life. And that's what these people did. They wasted the opportunity that God had given to them, and it was too late for them. The next generation, they went into the promised land. They defeated the Amalekites and the Canaanites. But for this generation, it was too late for them. How do I remain sane in an insane world? We need to know God personally. Only when life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last.